I'm talking to Punto, and I was like, I said, Nikki, just for one second, forget about this situation, forget about what's going on, forget about what you have to do next, and just do a 360 view of the stadium right now. And we both did. We both took about 25 seconds, 20 seconds, and we looked around the stadium and the buzz, and we looked at the towels getting waved. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest-growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind. All right, hey, everybody. Welcome to Minnesota Sports Rewind. I'm Phil Mackey. Judd Zolgad is here. Derek Wetmore. Manny Hill. And today, gentlemen, we go back almost 10 years from the time we're recording this to October 6th, 2009. It's 44 degrees and raining outside, 68, very comfortable inside as the Minnesota Twins hope to continue their 2009 season with a date with the Yankees with a victory in Game 163 today. Game 163, the last, well, the last win inside the Metrodome. Last regular uh, season game, right? The last regular season game yeah. inside the Metrodome. And as we're going to dive into, maybe like one of the most notable sports weeks in Minnesota history outside of 1991 World Series. Well, you had Favre v. Packers night before in an absolute classic in which he was fantastic. This, yeah, it might it is one of, without a doubt, one of the best two-day periods just of, of sports that are... They're not, you know, pre-planned. They're on the schedule. But just as far as a boom, boom in, in by the way, a stadium that to this day I detested still. <laughs> but let's go back and appreciate the amount of huge games played in that building. Oh, man. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, Adrian Peterson sets the rushing record in that building. Yeah. Like, you go back through the litany of, of events scheduled or just impromptu great games. 3,000 hit club things, right? David, Dave Winfield. Eddie Murray. Cal Ripken. Yeah. Cal Ripken. 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 Four yeah. hits, right? Yeah. In that game? I, yeah. was, I, w- I remember at the Metrodome, I was at the game against the Orioles the day before Cal Ripken got his 3,000th hit, and I was so mad that he got the hit the next day, and I wasn't there. I was so Because I, 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 I went there. I did, too. I was I at got the game. The got the certificate. Certificate. Put yeah. my <laughs> I went there the game before thinking, all right, I'm going to see history. This is great. Cal Ripken, he's got, it's going to happen. And then... I think he had went like 0 for 4 or something the game that I was at and yeah. then and then got the hit the next night. Yeah. So, all right, there's we're going to dive into a million things here, but just to set the landscape for this, the Twins had to finish 16 and 4 down the stretch just to force a game 163 with the Detroit Tigers. And that was I think all of those 20 games if I'm not mistaken were without Justin Morneau cuz Morneau suffered a back injury and they kept panning to him in the dugout, man. If the if the Twins only had Justin Morneau, like, well, they wouldn't have finished better than sixteen and four. <laughs> Seventeen Morneau. and three would have done it. Yeah. Wouldn't have needed game one sixty three. Uh, this was uh, Scott Baker versus Rick Porcello, which is amazing that a Rick Porcello's been league for ten years now. Twenty years old, Rick Porcello starting a game one sixty three yeah. to go to the playoffs. And I just want to go through with you guys because the summary of this game is bonkers. Let's let's go through sort of line by line if people forgot i think people know that this is a crazy uh, uh great game in baseball history but when you start to go line by line of the things that happened so the tigers jumped out to a three nothing lead after a miguel cabrera i believe it was a two-run homer they had scored a run and then miguel cabrera hits a two-run homer to put him up three to nothing and uh the twins came back in the bottom of the third inning and scored on an errant pickoff move by rick porcello to uh, to get on the board Jason Kubel, who, by the way, had a ridiculous season. He batted 300. He hit 
25, 30 home runs, and was it looked like he was going to be a middle-of-the-order bat for a long time for the Twins. And he winds up with a solo homer in the sixth inning. Uh, the Twins took the lead in the bottom of the seventh inning on the two-run home run by Orlando Cabrera to left field. And they had made the midseason trade for him. I think that might have been an August trade for Orlando Cabrera. Because he was with, I think he was with Oakland. They got him from Oakland, I think. And he comes in. He was super clutch down the stretch. Juicy hanging breaking ball by Zach Miner into the front row in left field. High fly ball. Hammer deep left field. Track. Wall. And gone. Metrodome magic. Metrodome mania. 4-3 Minnesota the lead. And I think you kind of thought at that moment, Man, the Twins, you got Joe Nathan, it's a lockdown bullpen, and this has been an amazing close game. And if the game had just been that, right? Yeah, that's just like, yeah, yes. yeah, and Joe Nathan comes in in an inning and closes it out, like, man, that was a great game. Yeah. That was just the beginning of this game. Right. I was going to say, if you're going through blow by blow of surprising things or, or you know, the box score flips on its head, that's a baseball. That's a pretty normal baseball game, but you amplify it by game 163 and all the pressure in the home crowd at the Dome which is going away, that would be a pretty cool story. But that's not a classic yet. Correct. That's the difference. It's, right it's a great baseball game. Yes. We'd all remember it because we're sports guys. But like, as I look down at the prep sheet and the rest of the box score that flips, <laughs> we're not halfway there yet. No. So literally <laughs> not right away in the top of the eighth inning. So the Twins take this lead. Orlando Cabrera hits the two-run home run, and it's celebration. And now you've got this what was a mostly really good Twins bullpen and boom, Maglio Ordonez blasts a bomb off Matt Guerrero to tie the game 4-4. Four to four. Uh, So, like, crowd's going crazy, and all of a sudden here's Mags that just, just comes up and buzz kills the whole thing. Uh, the top of the ninth inning, I wrote down as I watched this game back, I was wondering, when was the Joe Nathan fist pump? I couldn't remember if it was in extra innings, if it was in the 12th. Mm-hmm. And it happened in the top of the ninth inning. So we had Joe Nathan came in to clean up the eighth, and we got uh, we got first and third, nobody out. And uh, Nathan strikes out Placido Polanco, and Mags comes up again with the game on the line, and he's the one that lined out off Joe Nathan to yes. Orlando Cabrera at shortstop, and Orlando throws back to first base to Michael Kadire to double up Curtis Granderson, and that's when Nathan walked off the mound and did the big Tiger Woods fist pump, or the so. Jack Morris fist pump, whatever you want to call it. Line drive, one there, throw back to first, double play! Well, a line drive off the bat right at Cabrera. He's got a big home run in this game, and now the double play about this reaction. What are the odds of that line drive double play preserving the game? Less than 1%. I mean, you hit a screaming line drive. Okay, there's a chance that somebody catches it, of course, but the chances that a savvy base runner is then also doubled off at first base, easily less than 1%. What makes this really fun and fascinating is that it should not have happened here's my question in 2019 10 years after the fact do the twins have a shift on and that actually beats the shift and gets through <laughs> screamer up the middle the game twins over. are like yeah we're gonna shift him and all of a sudden yeah. bang right through or would you or would you shift mags maybe you would have had multiple defenders over on that side of the bag i true. see a mags spray chart i guess what's amazing too is maglio ordonez statistically didn't have huge numbers i mean he hit i think he hit over 300 that year but since the all-star break that year he had been like just tearing the yeah. cover off the yeah. ball he was hitting like almost 400 he killed the twins 
for a long time period too, right? Oh, yeah. You look up and down this lineup, and that's all I kept thinking was like twin killer, twin killer, twin killer, okay. twin killer, twin killer. Because okay, Miguel Cabrera, uh, one of the greatest hitters of his generation. Yeah, he kills everybody. <laughs> He's just a hired assassin. One of the best hitters of his generation. But then you look around, and I'm like, man, how did this Tigers team not score a thousand runs? Curtis Granderson, Placido Polanco, back when he was great. Maglio Ordonez, Carlos Guillen is like. A really good player that doesn't even get talked about in this lineup because of the rest of the guys. It was an incredible lineup, and it was kind of fun to go back and watch that. Yeah, they had – I'm saving some of this stuff for for fun with the box score segment. Sure. But they had – like Aubrey Huff came off the bench. Aubrey Huff was one of the the best hitters on on Tampa Bay's crappy teams before – Aubrey Huff was this incredible hitter for a few years on 95 lost Tampa teams. And then all of a sudden, I think he got traded or he had left Tampa, and then they get really good when he leaves. And then, of course, they had the great Cleet Thomas as well. That's yeah, right. As we all, right. as we all know, Cleet Thomas would later become a Twins great at Target Field. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> might be why, actually. They saw him in that game and thought, we need this guy. So, Adam Everett, too. He was on, he was on the yeah. Tigers and former twin. So so with the Joe Nathan fist bump, or the, the fist pump and the line out by Maglio, crowd's going crazy. We go to the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning. It's tied at four. And the Twins have a runner on second base. Brandon Inge makes a diving stop at third base on a scorcher by Orlando Cabrera that would have ended the game. Mm-hmm. I, and and I remember in the moment watching that off the bat thinking, oh, man, like game's over. Run scores from second. And Brandon Inge, who was, a, a, I think, a pretty underrated defensive third baseman, mm-hmm. he started off as a catcher. He saves the game for the Tigers in the bottom of the ninth inning. We go to the top of the tenth inning. Brandon Inge comes up doubles home a run off Jesse Crane to put the Tigers up 5-4. to four. So now you've gone from the seventh inning, elation, twins take a lead on the home run, back and forth, fist pump Joe Nathan. You thought the twins were going to win it in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Brandon Inge saves the day, and then the Tigers take the lead in the top of the tenth, and it's like, oh, now now the Tigers have won the game. Before we keep going on this, and I know I know we'll get a lot more into like where you were and your emotions and all that kind of stuff here, but just quickly around the room, where were you guys for this game? Manny, I, I know you said. I was in attendance. I was sitting in the 200 level along the third baseline. Okay. Me and uh, Ross Brendel, our uh, promotions guy here at Score North, uh, we were both sitting next to each other in the 200 level third baseline, and we couldn't hear each other. Yeah. There were <laughs> times in the during the game where the crowd was so loud, we were sitting right next to each other and could not hear each other yeah. at all. Like, it was just, it was amazing. Judd, where were you? I was at home. I, I was covering the Vikings at the time, and I think they had practiced that day, uh-huh. or they had they were, they were had played the day before, so perhaps they, they were off, but I think there was a, uh, a press conference. And so I got home and watched it, but I had been at um, all, all the games, home games of the 87 World Series, and then all but one in 91. So... It was really it was sort of emotional in in the sense that as much as I didn't like the building, I'm watching that thinking this is like the last great hurrah, and it's so much it's so loud because yeah. you could tell. Mm-hmm. And that building, I will say this: when that building got that loud, it was deafening. Yep, it was really cool. I was I was in attendance. I was uh, I was a credentialed member of the media for KFAN.com at the time, where I covered the Vikings and the Twins, and just kind of went back and forth. So I was. I was uh, initially in the auxiliary press box above the right field baggie, and then I got a text from someone that said, "Hey, there is an open seat right behind, you know, in the main press box, just above home plate, if you want." So I watched the first half of the game from right field, and then I watched the second half of the game from the press box behind home plate. And same thing, like 
not that people were cheering in the press box, but you couldn't hear, you couldn't have conversations with with people to your left and to your Mm -hmm. right. I was at uh, my college dorm room, freshman dorm room over in St. Paul, watching it in like the basement on their big screen TV that you can rent out or something like that. But it was so early in college, like nobody knew you could go and get that room. So we had kind of this like junky private suite to ourselves. Me and a buddy were watching this game together. We had gone to Saturday's game, the second to last game, the one that Granky started. And then Sunday, they tie it up. Monday off day, Tuesday is this game. And I don't remember having class that day or the next day or whatever. But if I did, I'm sure I just blew it out. Yeah. It's like, no, yes. sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a legendary week. So bottom of the 10th inning, Twins are now down 5-4. to four. And another familiar name comes in. Fernando Rodney takes yes. the mound, yep. ready to shoot some arrows into uh, the Metrodome. He was ready, line. wasn't he? <laughs> he was ready, but Michael Kadire leads off with a scampering triple. When this, I, I was writing this down for as I'm watching this. a great this. word, too, by the way. Because Kadire <laughs> scampers, word, right? I love the word scampering. And he kind of like, it gives you he a vision. side dove into third base, if I'm not mistaken. So Ryan Rayburn was the left fielder. Kadire hits one out, just kind of a little f- a flare. Or I guess if you're uh, if you're Chip Carey, he might have might have fisted one to left field, which we'll get into. And Ryan Rayburn misplays what should have been a bloop single, and this happened all the time in the Metrodome. He misplays it, the ball runs all the way to the alley, and Michael Kadire gets a, a dome triple out of it. Matt Tolbert comes up, another amazing name, yep. and drives Kadire in with a 15-hopping seeing-eye single up the middle. 5-5 <laughs> five to five now in the bottom of the 10th inning. Uh, Nick Punto comes up, hits a line drive to left field that was caught. This is later in the inning. Uh, Alexi Casilla was on third base, and Punto comes up, hits a line drive to left field, and it's a race to home plate between Casilla and Ryan Rayburn, and Rayburn throws a perfect strike to home plate. And this is where Chip Carey notoriously butchered the call. Line of, drive, base <laughs> hit. I've got it right caught. here. <laughs> yes. I've got it. Line drive, base hit, caught there. The runner tags, throw to the plate, on target, and in time, a double play. <laughs> Line drive, base hit, caught out there, runner tags, here he comes, throw to the plate, on target, and in time, a double play, ends the tenth. Richard Sandemir of the Times actually did an entire thing about Chip Carey in that playoff and how bad it got. Well, that play at the plate is when, Judd, you talked earlier about it. It wasn't a classic. That play is what made this a classic. It was like, this is a heavyweight, no holds barred. You want to go to the playoffs? Win this game. Throwing out a guy at the plate in extra innings with the game on the line with a perfect relay is what makes this epic. I mean, it, it takes the step from... Pretty good game yep. and a tense moment to, yep. okay, this is another level it's of wild It's got to decide the game. game, right? Like it can't be, well, that was a great play in the fifth, and oh, my God, I you know, that's fine. Right, right. But I think to qualify as a classic, we need at least one thing that actually decides it, and you're like, oh, my God, the game should be done. It's not done. Yes. And I remember re-watching the game and watching the broadcast. They were showing the replay that Alexi Casilla was actually late going back to third to tag up before trying to trying to get home. And if he had gone back to third right away, and you could see Scotty Alger, third base coach, telling him, go back to third right away, like yeah. tag up, tag up, because this ball might be caught. And But Alexi goes back, tags up late. If he had gone back in time, he probably would have beaten that throw and won the game. And if it wasn't for things that happened later, he would be getting murdered for that, right. like just, yeah. just crushed in, in the media. And he came in to pinch run, too. 
right? Yeah. In that case. Was so that, that for Delman? So that was... So, somebody got on base or like uh, drew a walk Brendan or something. Harris had pinch hit, it looks like. <laughs> Brendan Harris. It, it was, it was <laughs> Jose Morales started that game as Jose the DH. <laughs> and yeah, then Brendan right. Harris pinch yeah. hit for him <laughs> and Casilla. But so so Casilla's uh, a flop the there yeah. was, came after he was brought in. It, it was as bad as Chip Carey. Oh, man. Well, like you had one job. Well, let's <laughs> line drive. Let's be fair to that's down. Lexi no, here. it's not. <laughs> so now we go on to the the eleventh inning. So we're tied again. It's five to five, and this game is in its fourth hour here. And the crowd, I think, the crowd is on this roller coaster. I remember. I mean, you you were sitting with the fans, and I was sitting. Yeah. I was sitting with mostly the media trying to stay hushed. But I remember. I mean, it's like two different perspectives. You're supposed to be objective in the press box Mm -hmm. and you're not supposed to cheer and but like it was impossible to not jump out of your seat for some of these plays and like oh the oh my god factor Mm -hmm. i'll never forget later on in the viking season that year maybe it was might have been actually it might have been before that the greg lewis play was like late september of that year that was was the home opener yeah and being in the press box for that i mean the crowd it's it's top five pop i've ever heard in a stadium but you couldn't help watching that game, even as a quote unquote objective member of the media, like to jump out of your seat. Oh my God, did he catch that? What is happening down there? Um, and and so we're into the eleventh and into the twelfth, and I call this the Bobby Keppel aggressive plank walking period of the game. <laughs> so Bobby Keppel was this journeyman minor league pitcher, and this wound up being the last game he ever pitched in. He never pitched in another no game kidding. in the major leagues. Oh, Bobby I didn't Keppel. Know that. No, this unless he he made a did he get in for some cleanup action in the playoffs, but he never pitched again after two thousand nine. So he goes out you know, spoiler alert, he gets the win yep. <laughs> in this game. That's right. And but uh, but I couldn't remember before going back and watching the game, did he like did he mop them up? Did he yeah, I remember him pitching. No, it was aggressive fingernail biting if you were a fan watching. So the Tigers had the bases loaded in the 12th inning specifically. Uh, so so Keppel had grazed Brandon Inge's jersey with a fastball. They missed that, too. But they missed the call. Yeah. So we didn't, have, did. we didn't have expanded replay at the time. So he should have, with a hit-by-pitch to, to Brandon Inge, he should have essentially blown the game. And, and who knows, maybe the Twins come back and score again. Uh, but he manages to get out of both the, the 11th and the 12th, putting multiple guys on base and essentially hitting Brandon Hinge with a pitch yeah. with the bases loaded. I don't want to get too deep off on this tangent, but one thing that I thought of, and the instant replay brings it up, baseball has been criticized for some of the changes it's made in the ensuing decade, but it's better. I was rewatching that game, and they have to actually throw the four pitches for the intentional walk. That wasn't fun. Just let's go. Let's keep this moving. Yeah. And then twice in that game, guys came sliding into the plate and collided with Joe Maurer below his knees not I'm not saying like Bite they were tongue. trying to hurt Bite him. Bite your tongue. That was competitive. No, no. <laughs> I give me it back was, collisions. It was brutal. Give, uh, give me back collisions. Watching a star hitter stand at the plate there and have somebody hey. swipe for his Achilles is bunk. But it was and a Buster baseball Posey is, rule that got Baseball changed. is better now. Yeah, so, Buster, yeah, Buster Posey getting knocked. It was like oh yeah, that was really fun snapped. watching Buster Posey no, give back me, up hit give third me, all year. Give me Rose and Foss so in fun. the All Star game anytime, Wetmore. <laughs> <laughs> so bottom of the twelfth inning. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like the 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 list of things that happen. This is just like the peak things that happen. There's a lot of meta things that happen in this game that just like we could do a four hour summary on on those things too. So bottom of the twelfth inning. Carlos Gomez had come in the game earlier, I think as a defensive replacement, and this was his, I want to say this was his second at bat in the game. And he leads off with a single to left field. 
Kadir grounds out and moves Carlos Gomez to second base. And Delman Young uh, was intentionally walked to put runners on first and second, which brought Alexi Casilla to the plate. And the rest is history. Single to right field. Uh, Gomez flies around third base, help, pops the helmet off. Elation. He's very deep in the right. And a pitch bounce right side base hit. Here comes Gomez around third. There'll be no play. The Twins have won the century. In fact, the Twins, I don't know if they still have this in their clubhouse. You guys have been in there more recently than I have. But they had a mural the first few years of Target Field inside their clubhouse hallway of Casilla coming around, or it's, I guess Gomez coming around, and then players coming out of the It's different the now, but they definitely still have photos of that Gomez sliding headfirst, and he somehow slid like 45 feet, defying the laws of physics in the process, and then jumps up in celebration. The back bend, you know, looked like he was a ry- rhythmic gymnastics uh, competitor. He actually was. Did you not know I that? I didn't know that yeah. as a as a hobby of his. But he he would have been good at it. Um it was that is still a very very prominent sort of moment that's captured at Target Field. Yeah. So let's dive into some of the just some key questions off of this game, off of the period surrounding Twins yeah. baseball. I feel like before we jump into that I have to quick give Casilla credit because I I torched him earlier for that boneheaded base running move yeah. that Manny brought up. Uh Fernando Rodney threw a lot of pitches in that game, but it wasn't like he was up there throwing slop in the 12th inning. I, I think it was like a mid-90s fastball that Casilla, switch hitter, not known for his offense at any point in his career in the big leagues, uh, he put that thing into the outfield, punched it through. Yeah, okay, it, was, it wasn't like a screaming line drive, but to get bat to ball on a dominant closer like that to win that game, that was a pretty epic moment. Yeah. All right, Michael Kadair, Game 163 against the Detroit Tigers. Did you ever pause to think during that game, which I believe was like a four-and-a-half-hour uh, situation, <laughs> yeah. 13 innings, did you ever pause to think, holy crap, I'm playing in one of the greatest baseball games of all time right now, or did you not have you time know, to it, think about it? It's really funny when you asked that question. I think it was a pitch and change. <sighs> maybe we brought in Nathan. Maybe we brought in Keppel. One of those guys. I don't remember which one it was in particular, so we – you know, Gardy comes out, makes a pitch and change, and you know how all the infielders meet behind the pitcher's mound and talk and whatever we do. I'm talking to Punto, and I was like, I said, Nikki, just for one second, forget about this situation, forget about what's going on, forget about what you have to do next, and just do a 360 view of the stadium right now. And we both did. We both took about 25 seconds, 20 seconds, and we looked around the stadium and the buzz, and we looked at the towels getting waved, and it was probably like the seventh inning or eighth inning or something like that. I don't remember what inning it was. But we did. We both took that mental snapshot of what the stadium looked like for 15, 20 seconds. And I remember probably a few years after, I don't know, Nicky had already probably won the World Series with the Cardinals, but he said, you know what? He goes, I think back to that time, and I appreciate you getting me out of that moment for a few seconds just to take that snapshot and, and have that ingrained in my head. So to answer your question in a, in a long-winded way, yes. Um, for those 15, 20 seconds, we both realized the magnitude of the game that we were in. Cuddy, what were the emotions like throughout that game from, from start to finish? Because I remember being in attendance – 
on the on the second deck, third baseline, just as as a fan, just watching the game, and it was like a roller coaster ride to the point where, when Alexi Casilla got the game winning hit, I was so spent I was so emotionally spent as a fan like I had no reaction I couldn't even react because the game was so up and down so for you guys on the field in the game making plays what were what were the emotions like throughout that game from start to finish well I can tell you this I mean obviously I can't get into the fans head but in my opinion um it's a lot easier being a player in those situations than it is a fan. There's no question about it in my mind. Now, I coach 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds, and I get way more nervous in an 11-year-old meaningless game than I did in 163. <laughs> um, <laughs> because you're so focused on, on the job at hand. You're so focused on what you have to do. You're so locked into the strategy of the game the the plays of the game each and every pitch that you really can't I I don't want to say you can't afford to get wrapped up in the emotion you just don't get wrapped up in the emotion because of the focus now with that being said you know when when or Maglio Ordonez lines the double play to Orlando Cabrera and I catch that ball at first base yeah I'm emotionally high coming running (laughs) off that bag running off that bag and seeing Joe Nathan fist pump the emotions are running high. Um, when I see Ryan Rayburn die for my ball, when I end up getting a triple and I get the third, yeah, I'm emotionally high. Um, you know, when I see the home run go out of the ballpark from Miguel Cabrera, yeah, I'm at an emotionally low point. But you never, as a player, you never lose focus, so you never get too high, get too low. Uh, it, it's it's a hard dynamic to explain, but. When the game was over, I was physically and mentally drained. There's no question, but we still had time, time, some time to, to spray some champagne. Michael, when you talk about you know doing your job, you've got an assignment, take care of it, get the task done. Uh, I, that's what I think about when I look back on you playing first base in that spot when Morneau was hurt. Do you remember what the first conversation was when it was like, hey, w- whenever it was, whether it was for that game specifically or earlier in the season, Hey, we kind of need you to step up and do something that's outside of the ordinary. Do you do you remember what that chat was like, and could you shed some light on it for us? Yeah, you know, it, it never really was uh, in that particular instance. It never really was discussed. It was just like, you know, what I'm the next guy up. That's that's what we do. And you know, I've I've, I've said this time and time before. I always prided myself on being a baseball player, not a right fielder, not a, a first baseman, not a third baseman, whatever it may be. I just, I, I, I'm a baseball player. That's what I do. And uh, in my opinion, a baseball player should be able to play baseball wherever the manager feels confident to put them. And that's what happened. There was never really a conversation. The only times I ever remember conversations was later, you know, like I think it was like 2010 when I told Guardy when Nishioka got hurt, put me at second base. That was a conversation. Or when we needed somebody to go back and play third base, and I haven't done that in five or six years, put me at third base. We need Tomi and Kubel in the lineup. But as far as 2009 was concerned, when Justin got hurt, first of all, I felt partially responsible as soon as I hit the double play ball that got yeah. him a concussion. Well, whoops. <laughs> but, um, no, it was just that was just what was going to happen. I was going to go play first, and we were going to be able to put Kubel in right. Yeah, uh, I feel, so. I, I think it was the uh, the tenth inning of game one sixty three when there's there was a lot of Metrodome advantages throughout the years. Whether it was I mean, you guys had a lot of 
hard ground ball hitters, the Denard Spans and the Guzmans, and like little things that you could take advantage of beyond crowd noise. But in the 10th inning, you wound up with a triple on what probably should have been a single to left, and Ryan Rayburn sort of fell down trying to catch it. And that's one of those plays, I think, Michael, that if that's at target field, that ball gets by Rayburn, and you maybe get to second base. But because it's the Metrodome, you scamper all the way to third base, and you wind up, I believe, scoring a run in that inning. And I, I, I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on just Metrodome advantages throughout that era. Yeah, I mean, that particular play, like I said, like you said, I mean, it was able to roll to the wall, and, and Grandy Granderson wasn't able to get to it, and I was able to get a, a triple, which was a close play. You know, I had to do my late slide into Brandon Edge in order to just be safe at third. It was kind of a belly flop, uh, scampering belly flop, if I remember yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it was. And like you said, you know, it, it's one of those, it happened to me in the 2000, we talk about 2002, it happened to me in game one of 2002 ALCS, where if you let it drop, it's a possibility of it jump bouncing over your head and having the same result. And he kind of did whatever he did. It obviously didn't catch it. It worked out for us, but those were the nuances of the Metrodome. Um, you know, those were the things. And, and the, the, the crowd is a, is a, was a huge advantage for us in the Metrodome. And I think any Minnesota Twins team that was able to play in a, in a postseason game in the Metrodome can say that that was a, a positive, especially if you got the crowd engaged early. And obviously that game, the, the, the crowd was engaged the whole time for four hours. It was 60,000, 55,000 people screaming. And, as a player, I know as a visiting player, when you go into those hostile environments, you know, you kind of feel that noose tighten around that neck a little bit. And I'm sure that's probably what happened in that particular play where, you know, you, you feel that noose. Do I dive? Do I not dive? Boom. It, it, it makes the wrong decision and it works out for us. But, you know, those were big advantages. You know, obviously the, the white roof was a, was a, a big advantage. Um, you know, there was a, there was a lot of just the, the quirks of the, you know, one thing that never get really gets talked about is the batter's eye with the way that the, the seats lined up in center field. The depth perception when you come back, when you come from a, a road a road trip, was tough. It was tough to get used to that depth perception. Oh. So for a visiting team that wasn't used to it at all, in my opinion, that was a huge advantage for us going into it. Just that depth perception of the way the seats lined up in the, in the batter's eye. Sure. Yeah, in the studio here, we uh, we all remember where we were when Alexi Casilla poked it through the right side and Gomez comes flying around. Uh, do you remember where you were, Michael Kadire, when that ball was hit? I was right in the middle of the dugout, and there's a there's a great picture of when Gomez is sliding and touching home plate. He's just passed home plate, and I'm like. I swear, I mean, I couldn't really ever dunk in high school, but I could have gotten – I was like Zion Williamson as high as I was. <laughs> and I ran out of that dugout, and, and you can see that picture. It's online or whatever, but I swear I looked like I jumped eight feet in the air yeah. and, uh, and and to meet Gogo at home plate. Yeah. Uh, Michael Kadire, we, re- we really appreciate your time here. Just one last quick thing. Um, of, of all these Twins teams from 2000, I'll, I'll include 2001 too because that was the first really, really good season that just came up short. Of all those Twins teams, which one do you look back on and say, man, we, we, if you would have run that season back 10 different times, we, we would have won the World Series if, if we could have had another crack at it? 2006. No yeah. question. I mean, it, there's not even, you know, I, I still believe if Frankie doesn't get hurt, if he doesn't, you know, Liriano, if he doesn't have to have Tommy John, that, 
you know, we, we would have won the World Series or at least had a great shot at it. I mean, it was so demoralizing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot obviously talked about getting swept against Oakland in that series, but, I mean, we we were mentally demoralized once Frankie went down, what was it, like a week or two weeks before that, maybe not even, and uh, that kind of hurt us and, and kind of derailed us a little bit. But, yeah, 2006 was one of the seasons where I thought, you know, from, from the end of May, I, I thought we were unbeatable. Yeah. Hey, super fun reminiscing, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for taking me down uh, memory lane. Sure. Right <laughs> Thanks, right. Cuddy. All right, see you, Michael. All right. Do the Twins win that game at Target Field? So, like, given all of the – because I, I've always contended, and, and I actually got into a debate with uh, Smalley about this, I've always contended the 87 team, if you take them out of the Dome, they do not win that World Series. Like, there's no way. Uh, if you take that game out of the Metrodome and put it in Target Field or Detroit, do the Twins win that game? So I think your your question has two prongs to it. Would the atmosphere have lifted them to the win is prong one, right? And I think yes. I mean, and it's, it's hard to sort Absolutely. of quantify that. Because yeah. we haven't had a great game like that at Target Field to know yeah. apples to apples. But I think, I think of it almost prong number two, which is would some of the things that happened in that game have happened at Target Field? Yes. Matt Tolbert's 15-bounce single up the middle, that's an out at Target Field. Mm-hmm. I mean, look. Go look at if you want to get really granular. Go look at Denard Span's numbers as a twin inside the Metrodome, and then look at the drop off when he had to hit with a grass infield, and when his his little bouncers up the middle and those opposite field ground ball singles when those yeah. those are scooped up because they're not as fast, right? So Matt Tolbert drives in a run with a fifteen hopper up the middle. I mean, that is a dome single. Michael Kadir yep. gets to third base because of a bloop. So if that happens at Target Field. Maybe it's a double, if the, so. The ball kind of bounces in front of the outfielder. Uh, if it gets by the outfielder in a grass outfield, it just goes five feet behind him, and he picks it up and throws it back in. It's probably a single, to be honest. Instead, it's a triple, and now Kadir's two bases advanced. And I would say the Orlando Cabrera home run to the first row in left field is undoubtedly well, that's a mower. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. double at best. <laughs> yeah, maybe a flyout. Yeah. Right? I was just going to look up the So all overlay. of the runs the Twins scored, yeah. except for the Kubel <laughs> home run. But then we'll the, the Kubel home run was to right center. Yeah. And you saw the next year, the Mornos, the Kubels, the Denard Spans, how many guys, how many left-handed hitters hit a ball to that exact area just to the left of the overhang at Target Field, and it winds up just yeah. being a fly ball caught. The sure. Twins may not have scored a run in the game. No, but <laughs> if I remember, though, like my Cabrera's was a no-doubter. Uh, Miguel Cabrera's was a no-doubter. And I think I think Kubel's leaves too at any park. Um, the Orlando Cabrera is the one that I was questioning. I was going to look up like that's the what overlay. I said. No, yeah. that's what I, Orlando Cabrera first row. Like right. they went to score that run. Right. That's what I'm thinking. That is like okay. This, maybe it's a double off the wall. It kind of changes the game. The other thing too is that team was kind of built for the dome. Like you look up and down. Okay, that team had two star players. Let's be honest about it. I, I love Michael Kadire, but it was Joe Maurer, Justin Morneau. After that, the lineup was chock full of your Denard Span, who was probably the best of this bunch that I'm about to name, but then Matt Tolbert, Nick Punto, Piranha, Orlando yeah. Cabrera. <laughs> like Your 7, 8, and 9 that day went Jose Morales, DH, Matt Tolbert started at third base, and Punto at second base. And, and where was Jason Tyner? <laughs> like, was I don't he, know if he was on the 2019, but yeah, my point is that he's like, 
Oh, he would have been before, he have been I think. He was yeah, the Piranhas era came. It, it was like 2006, he would have been there. This was the last win of the Piranhas era. Yeah. And because the 2010 team loaded up on J.J. Hardy exactly, became the shortstop, right. and then Orlando Hudson came Tolman, in. Right? You change how you build your team based on your environment and where you're playing half your games, and they thought speed and, and I think defense right. was going to help. The, the Kadire play is completely different. Probably. So I, I yeah. think you're right. I, I think if you take if you extrapolate that game onto or take it to a different field, weird stuff happened there. The Casillas. Let's let's, let's say be honest. let's say all things are equal, and and I'd have to go back and watch it a little more closely again. But the the Alexi Casillas single might not be a single through the hole. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask about, and I can't decide if that ball was hit hit well enough, regardless. But that's what I, I was thinking too, because the difference there was once once a screamer hit the turf, that was it. Yeah. Like. The odds of you making that play, unless you were in shallow right field or something, yeah. were really, really small. Yeah. So we're recording this in April of 2019, and the talk around baseball is launch angle, do damage, get it up in the air. Line drive is okay. Fly ball is better because it could be a home run. Yep. The Twins were probably, and I wasn't covering them at this point, I was a freshman in college, Probably talking reverse launch angle. Oh, like, for sure. Hey, make sure get you get on, on top of the ball, spike it which so at, that which John's dome, talking which about. Which at the Dome did make sense. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, I mean, it was. It, I mean, they literally used to. I don't know if the twins taught this specifically, but there was a, an era of baseball teaching where it was. It was not right now. It's launch angle, and for a while, it was chop wood, hit the top half of the baseball line drives ground balls because fly balls. Unless it's a home run, it's going to get caught. And now guys yeah. are like, who cares? Yeah, <laughs> some of them are going to get caught, and some of them are leaving the yard. Yeah, yeah. but I think, and you know, and Phil, you brought up the the Matt Tolbert chopping single up the middle that tied the game at five. Like that, Polanco at Target Field, Placido Polanco probably scoops that ball up and throws him yeah. out, right? Yeah. I mean, that... Yeah, because it's not going to take off. Yeah, it's not going to no, bounce right. the way it did, and yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. So, all right, key question number two. How shocked are you guys that this... So this was one of the peak moments in Twins history. I know the World Series are definitely one and two, um, and we could pick nits going back to the 1960s, but... Winning this game and finishing the season on a sixteen and four run, and in a new ballpark is ready to be christened in two thousand ten. So it was a lot of feel good stuff. Joe Maurer won the MVP award in two thousand nine. A lot of feel good stuff in and around this game. How shocked are you that this team was the worst team in baseball less than two years later? I was baffled. I couldn't believe it. I mean, because the and and Royce's told this story all the time about. Going into that 2011 season, spring training, the only question mark about the Twins going into 2011 was, can this team beat the Yankees in the playoffs? That was the only question yeah, mark. Yeah. And then to have that season go the way it went, and then the next thing you know, they lose 99 games in 2011. I mean, just a year, I mean, two years removed from this game that we're talking about, but a year removed from being one of the best teams in baseball. At their first year at Target Field, I mean it's it's uh, it's one of the most shocking seasons that I could even remember in my young years. I have a hot take on this, boys, and I'm not known for hot takes at all. In retrospect, it makes all the sense in the world that this team fell into the gutter. I I hear what Manny's saying, and I remember Phil listening to you in your young radio days battling with Roycey. It wasn't even battling because you both agreed. Your point was. This regular season, 2011, I think it was, is pointless. This is meaningless because fast forward, it's going to be Twins and Yankees, and the story is going to be the same. Can they get over the hump? 
and Pat more or less agreed. He doesn't think the regular season is meaningless. That's where you were fighting, but he was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's going to end up Twins-Yankees. Nope, 99 losses. It seems surprising in the moment, of course. But then I look back at this roster, and I think, this wasn't... This wasn't that great. I mean, it's kind of what the Cleveland Indians have in 2019. This had two superstar offensive players. I suppose where the comparison stops is the, te- the Twins never really had pitching. I mean, outside of 2006, can you remember a great Twins pitching yeah. year where you thought, yeah, that guy, he's a horse. That guy's an ace. I, I look back at some of the rosters and the-, the-, the Matt Tolberts, the Nick Puntos, and I think like, Ah, uh, there's not really that much to like here if Joe Maurer and Justin Morneau ever get hurt. And then, boom, there's the surprise. They were done almost almost overnight. I think the difference is, in 2011, I was certainly shocked at that time. But now, when I go back and examine this box score, yep. and I see who played that day, right. I'm not shocked. And, and yeah, to Derek's point, if somebody had come and told you, Morneau's going to get hurt, and it's going to be really it's gonna bad. going to change his career. You'd say, whoa. And then, of course, they'd say, oh, and I'm not done yet. Maurer's also going to get hurt, and it's going to be really bad. And then you're like, what the hell? And and then also, so combine that, which is very bad luck, with the inaction, Delman Young. To Phil's point back then, trade him now. Yeah. Like, this is a perfect time to trade him. They didn't move there. So I think, a com- I think the combination of bad luck, which fans don't w- want to hear about, and complacency as mm-hmm. well, but when you look at this box score and yeah. you look at, at the lineup, the Twins paraded out that day, um, nearly 10 years after the fact, I guess I'm not shocked. Yeah, I, mean, that thing was I was taped, at the time. It so, was taped yeah. together, man. Well, the, the other <laughs> yeah. the other major factor, too, was just the, the erosion of philosophy and how the, the Twins' philosophy of you know whatever they were doing from a scouting and development standpoint was, was really being outmatched or overmatched by some of the other smart teams in baseball. The Twins were like the model smart efficient franchise right there next to the Oakland A's in the early 2000s and they were doing a lot of the same things if not all of the same things a decade later while other organizations were evolving in fact I remember so you know the the twins were still you know the twins got in 2007-8 they missed the playoffs a couple years they did go to a game 163 in 2008 so I mean they were they weren't terrible but they were I started to see some signs, and I had at the time, I believe it was just my own personal, philmackey.com, it was a Twins blog. And I remember I posted a couple really critical things about the Twins process compared to some of the other teams in baseball. And someone from the Twins front office had reached out to me and basically said, like, you're full of crap, this is BS. And we got into what I would call a healthy back and forth and a, an email thread, and then we talked in person. And my red flag went up. When I said, listen, my beef with you guys and why I write about this and why I talk about this I'm what, at the moment was a weekly twin show is, yeah, you're winning games right now, but there's a lot of other teams that are really all in on this money ball movement and on base percentage and these different things that you guys really don't seem to value. You guys have a lot of just slap hitting number two hitters and a bunch of Matt Tolbert's lying around. And that, that doesn't feel like the way that base, the direction the baseball is headed in. And the response back, and I don't want to name this person because, I mean, What's it's a point? smart person who was just sort of caught up in a different era. And they said, well, what are you talking about? We look at in-depth stats. For instance, when we signed Mike Lamb, we looked at his home road splits and what his road batting average was. And I was like, oh, so that, you is, his baseball card? that is not the type of advanced analytics that the Red Sox <laughs> and the Rays and some of these other in the, in the, in the uh, Oakland Athletics are looking at. So I think combination of your two best MVP players – 
devastating injuries and wear and tear. Yep. And then, you know, there's a lot of franchises that can stand to lose a couple star players because their system and the way that they build a roster, the water level is higher. And the Twins yeah. didn't have that water level to support two guys going out. Like, an organization with a higher water level and a, and a better system yeah. doesn't go from 90 wins to 100 losses. Right, right. But they still don't win the World Series without their two MVPs. No, no. I one, get what you're saying. No, but, debate, what we didn't, but what we didn't know at, at the time and couldn't have known and found out was the farm system yeah. had started to erode really Correct. badly, yeah. and, right. and the draft picks were were really bad. And so, so what we didn't know was was for a long time, especially pitching, there was no reinforcements coming, mm-hmm. none. Well, because their platonic ideal for 15 years was Brad Radke reincarnate. Like, well, in fact, look at the pitching staff to that point. Scott Baker. So the guys who made the most starts for the Twins in 2009, and, they, and it was only an 87-win team. I mean, they took advantage. If there was one team in that division that was good, it would have the, the game 163 wouldn't have happened, and yep. and you would have looked at you know the season going into 2010 as wow, maybe this they haven't made the playoffs in three years, sure, right? Yeah. But yep. Nick Blackburn was their horse in 2009. Brad Radke reincarnated. Brad Radke light. Sure. Uh, Scott Baker made 33 starts, and he was just sort of a number four starter who, you know, he, he was fine in a rotation, but he was, like, Scott Baker was their ace, basically. Yeah. Uh, and then you had Francisco Liriano coming off Tommy John surgery. Glenn yeah. Perkins made 18, 17 starts that season. And it's not the Glenn Perkins you're thinking of. No, this is the... Four strikeouts per nine innings, Glenn Perkins, yes. that even he makes fun of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Slowey and then Carl Pavano. I mean, it was a pitch-to-contact, 89-mile-an-hour, yeah. sinking fastball staff. Yeah, that. and I mean, that's like, I look at, when you talk about philosophy, and I think that's where, it's it's almost unfair to look at it back now, because now it's like slap you across the face obvious. You're like, where was the velocity? Where were the strikeouts? How come none of their pitchers had any power? And, I mean, Baker was their blow you away with a but, 91 mile an hour fastball but upstairs. You didn't need that you didn't need that with that roster. It's just more the prob- obvious. The now. problem was not targeting it for for the future. So this is really a conversation about how were you not thinking of the, of what was to come. And, you, and they just didn't. You weren't a franchise that was ready didn't. to lose two MVPs. In their defense, and I've brought this up a number of times, I'll continue to go to it, most franchises couldn't stomach that loss. It's just that if the Astros lost Altuve and George Springer, they'd be like, oh, okay, well, it's still I don't know. we've still got Alex yeah. Bregman because we yep. drafted him fourth overall, and you took Cole Stewart. Yeah, I mean, you don't you you don't go from, you know, there's not a thirty or forty win difference by losing two players in baseball. Sure, there's a, you know, uh, a twelve guys? a twelve to eighteen yeah. win difference <laughs> for those guys in, at that time period. But Joe Mauer, but Joe Mauer played in 2010 and 2012 and 2000. Well, 2010 they were really good. Joe Maurer played a lot of games and just wasn't the same player, and so well, I want to I want to keep this moving to another yeah, key question because it's there's so many fascinating things here. Uh, was this the greatest or most fun sports week in Minnesota history <laughs> since 1991? So 1991, you had Game Six, Game Seven, and it's pretty tough to top those things. But when you had the Brett Favre primetime home game against the Packers. Back to back with, and also the weekend before that, the Twins had to win a bunch of games. Was it against the Royals just yeah. to get into the playoffs yeah. or into the game 163? And then you had Brett Favre against the Packers for the first time, yeah. followed by game 163, followed by what wound up being a buzzkill ALDS Can series I against the A's. I, 
I would say the key word is was it the most fun organic because because Favre you know Favre came late I mean my God we thought Sage or Tavares was going to be the starting quarterback for a long time and then he came in and you knew that that he was essentially there to try and beat the Packers so is it maybe the most fun non planned because one sixty three just came out of okay we, we've got to uh, break this tie. We've had great weeks here, but they're ordinarily – it's a Final Four, so it's planned. It's sure. a Super Bowl, so it's planned. Mm-hmm. Was this the most fun two-day period that, that a year before you would have had no clue? Well, and, and if someone had been like, guess what, next yeah, year, 2009, yeah, yeah. back-to-back, far V Packers, and then Twins versus Tigers in a game 163, you'd Yo, be like – let me get some of that dope stop, Yeah, smoking. stop smoking drugs and <laughs> so, talk to me. I think it has to be, at least in my lifetime, the best when you bring up the word organic – you know, throw out the pesticides, throw out the pre-planned stuff. Yeah, it no, has no. to be the best because there just aren't that many organic things that happen in sports like this. So to have two of the biggest in my life to happen in that same short time window, I can't even think of a week that would compare with this. Like, what are some of the other organic things that even pop up? I, I mean, can't. I, I'm trying to, as you guys have been talking, I've been trying to think of another, like, Couple of days, yeah, like Western Conference Finals for the Wolves. That's not organic. The what? Wild playoff run in 1999. Oh, the what? The what? 2004. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like you could point to different playoff series. Yeah. Okay. If a, if there was a sure. game six and a game seven for the Wild or the Timberwolves against the Sacramento Kings, 1999, you had an Eric Milton no hitter and then a Gophers team that was popping up, but I can't remember the Gophers played somebody off, the though. next like that On night Saturday or something. Night. Yeah, and it I didn't can't pay remember. Off and the. The wild run is maybe the most comparable thing because the Timberwolves are like, oh, this is a great team. They brought in Sprewell. They brought in Cassell. It's like designed to build around KG. Finally, yeah. he has the sidekicks to go win something. That wild team was overmatched, and well, it should have been over at a bunch of different series? times. I'm, I, so we're just talking like one game right, here. Right. And, and like, okay, scripted. there's just going to be one game. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's going to be fun. It's going to be far playing the Packers. It, it's going to be great. And, oh, by the way, the next night – it's going to be game 163. Yeah. I would say the answer to your question is yeah, I mean I'm I'm almost 50 and it might be the best yeah. two days. Oh my god, where did this come from? Just pop up and especially now in the uh the dog days of sports here, it might be the best two day just fun unexpected period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, could I stump for was there a time in like 2003 when the Gopher football team was 6 and 0? So when they played Michigan, that was in October, right? Was there a Twins? I'd have to go see. Was there a Twins Yankees game? I, w- I wouldn't put that above game 163 and, and no. Brett Favre playing the Packers. No, and especially not when you throw the word organic. But like the, the whole nature of the unexpectedness of it is, I think, what does it for me. And yes. I guess I'm maybe I'm just trying to uh, prove my own side of the argument here, but. I don't care that neither of those paid off. Favre didn't win a Super Bowl, and the Twins lost in the division no. series. Like that, it's yeah. it's not really relevant to my argument here. That like the possibility still existed, and one of the things that's great about sports is that hope and dream factor that was still alive and well after those games were completed. And I think that's what made this so fun. And I think when you look at both of those games, the Favre versus the Packers, that was a Monday night game, so everybody. In, I mean, it's not just Vikings and Packers fans watching that game. It's everybody in America basically watching that game yeah, because yes. it's prime time. It's Monday Night Football. <laughs> right. And then you go to the next night at the Dome, game 163. Again, that's prime time. 
nationally televised game. Everybody's watching. Every baseball fan, even if you're not a Twins and Tigers fan, you're watching that game because that game's going to decide who is ultimately going to get beat by the Yankees in the playoffs. But still, it's <laughs> right. it's a, it's, it's the only baseball game that night, and so people are watching. And I think just yeah. the magnitude of both games and and the amount of eyes that are that are actually watching both games makes it makes it even better. And Great in point. this town, the fact that that was going to be like like one of the last hurrahs, especially for a team that had won two World Series championships in that building. Yeah, that's right. Was really cool. That's a I, I never really felt, you know what, when, when the Vikings got to their last year in the Dome, I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, but there was time. something, and, and again, it's weird because I don't like the Dome, but the fact that they had won a couple of championships and, and the fact that 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 building was deafening for that. And then you went back to that for one day. It right. was just cool. Well, I went to game one. Let's see, what would have been the third to last game maybe? Well, I think it was that Saturday because we went to the Gophers-Badgers game at TCF the first year that it was here. Gophers lost that game, but it was close. It was fun. And we walked over to the Dome. Um, and that was that. So Saturday, one of the last games of the season, and that was the game Granke started for the Royals and yada yada, the Twins needed to take care of business to get there. But I remember walking out that day knowing that I would not see the inside of this place again as a baseball field. And that was a weird feeling. I mean, even at whatever I was, 18 probably at the time, it was a weird feeling looking over that in my childhood, taking the light rail down to the the mall uh, or from the mall to the dome and being like, yeah, okay, there are a lot of memories in this building. And I, and some level, who cares? Like, it's just a building. It's just a place. But on another level, it's like, wow, there's a real thing that's tied to this. That's It was really tangible for me. And I remember that being such a weird thought, a weird moment in my mind of, I'll never see this again. And another thing just popped up in my head, too, about going back to the question, Phil, that you had about, you know, if this game was at Target Field where the Twins have won this game. You know, I remember that night it was cold and it was raining mm-hmm. going into going. I remember walking into the dome from my car, from where I parked, and it was like drizzling cold. It was like 42 degrees. Oh, the rain was, you know, it was drizzling. Was it 42 degrees? Because it was it was it was like in the 40s. Because so, I remember it being being really chilly that day. Because and I, and this might be the temp inside the dome. When you go, because well, I, do I don't remember the yep. baseball. They do inside the dome for baseball reference. Ba- okay, so baseball like reference, start time weather says 68 degrees. It wasn't 68. <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> In late October. Uh, very nice the Metrodome, yeah. yeah. No, I, I just, I remember it being cold and rainy that day. And that, you know, that just popped back up in my head. And I, I was thinking, like, yeah. imagine that game being at Target Field. No, and it's 45 degrees and it's drizzling. Our guy and... Rami would probably rant for 10 minutes about yeah. this right now. Oh, this yeah. game never would have been played. <laughs> Can you imagine? Well, it would have been just like the next day. You or know something. what's kind of fascinating thinking back on all this, guys? is This game, not, not on its own, it didn't do this. But this game did help to change baseball. I mean, the 2000, was it 2008 that they went to 163 against the White Sox? Mm-hmm. Tommy got them. Yeah. Um, 2009, 163, Twins pay it off with the classic, probably the third most classic game in my lifetime. But the other two were World Series games, so that doesn't count. And they loved that so much. Major League Baseball there loved was another that so one, much. 2012, like 2012, the final day of the season 11, where there's 11, 11. Okay. Th- uh, Red th- Sox. Three games Rays, for two playoffs. Bob Dan Johnson Goria, from Minnesota yes. hits a big home run. Longoria with the celebration. Boston, the Cardinals. 
yep, got that, in. That's and right. That, and then in uh, – I actually looked this up. And then in November of 11, they changed and said one game wild card. Yeah. Right. In our veins, they said. Right. Oh, right. absolutely. And that was a great night. But Just get an IV I think bag. Derek's right. I, I think between – Twins 2009, and then the night that they saw those three games play yes. for two spots, and it was just phenomenal. Well, Baseball said, we got to have it. If this. it's just one great day like that one that we're talking about, the Longoria, the Rays, all that great stuff, and I remember where I was for that one too, ton of fun, great memory, but you wouldn't have the momentum built up to be like, you want to just do this, add another wild card every year? They had to have the momentum for a couple of years, and 09 probably helped get that over. And that was right in the middle, to your point too, Derek, that was right in the middle of an era where we had a ton of one-game tie-breaking. Flip a coin, baby. You know, I I remember the the year the Rockies went to the World Series in 2007, they had to win a one-game playoff against the Padres. At, at Coors to, to to decide who the wildcard team was going to be in the National League. And so, and that was 07, and then you go, you know, Twins-White Sox in 08, and then you go Twins-Tigers, oh, not like, there was like a five or six year period of just, we were getting last day of the season, one game playoffs, year after year after year. It was just, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to dive into some fun facts from the box score here to, yes. to wrap up? We have Definitely. to. So I'm going to give you uh, just one off the top that this was peak Joe Maurer here. So this was Joe Maurer, MVP. He missed the entire month of April and still winds up winning the MVP. Uh, the, I had to sort of put myself in a different headspace because through the commentary and through the way that pitchers approached him, he was the most dangerous hitter in baseball at the time of this game. Yes. There were no more dangerous hitters in baseball. It was Joe Maurer was the guy. He was batting 365, OPS of 1031. Ooh. And he reached Ooh. base four times in six plate appearances, which was just standard for him. Yeah. And like literally standard for him is his on-base percentage was flirting with 500 for much of that season. And uh and he winds up 2 for 4, a couple of walks and uh and saw let's see here. Uh saw 20 pitches in those six plate appearances. So just Peak Joe Maurer in the box score uh, yeah. for this one. Like this I, was the peak of his career. I remember that summer too. Is like, you know there are certain twin seasons that pull in casual fans. It's you got your you got your lifeblood of Twins fans and not just season ticket holders, but I mean people that watch on TV all the time or listen to the call on the radio. That season it was like I don't know five x that because all of my friends suddenly who wait a second you don't like baseball. What were you doing watching the game on Friday? That was a summer that it drew everybody in, just like 2006 did. And I remember, yeah, those casual friends thinking the only conceptualization they had of Joe Maurer was that he was born in St. Paul and that he's a superhero. <laughs> like He is a legendary figure, a legend, a legend walking among us. And it's sort of funny that it's only been 10 years, but how much that narrative has changed. And not only that, but also how much he's aged in those ensuing 10 years. You don't look at it and say like, oh, yeah, that guy's 10 years older. You look at it and say like, he's a couple decades older. The incredible thing, though, was the guy was a catcher, too. Yeah. This is why when when people are like, he's not a, a Hall of Fame player, you come back at him and say, you don't understand that this guy's greatness while playing a position that was was sure to age you and wear you down badly he wasn't just a good catcher who could hit this guy was this guy was putting up prolific numbers while playing a position that takes an enormous toll that's what was incredible did he throw somebody out in that game too runner trying to get second speaking of fun with the box score let's uh let's see i don't remember that off the top of my head but there were were there any stolen bases or caught stealings i don't know i don't think so 
I don't see any. I'm looking through. Oh, base running. Here we go. Pickoffs. Denard Span was picked off first base by Rick Porcello. And uh, that's pretty much all. Um, Other fun facts from the box score. John Rausch pitched for the Twins in this game. Mm -hmm. The the next year's closer after Joe Nathan blew out his elbow in spring training. He pitched two-thirds of an inning. He threw uh, four pitches and faced a couple of batters. He was the first reliever in for Scott Baker in the seventh inning when Baker ran Hmm. into some some trouble. I remember what it was, actually, is Maurer threw out a guy at second trying to steal, but it had been ball four to the batter. So they did end up like, he made the throw, he made it in time, but the guy got the bag. So that's where I was off. Eight pitchers. The Twins used to that day. So Scott Baker, John Roush, Jose Mahares, (laughs) uh, who showed up to spring training a couple years later in A-shape, (laughs) <laughs> is, is he in shape? Uh, Matt Greer, Joe Nathan, Jesse Crane, Ron Mayhay. The last oh, yeah. two I love. And Bobby Keppel. Ron Mayhay and Bobby Keppel. Think about that. There were 391 total pitches thrown in this game between two teams and four hours and 37 minutes total game time. So this is something that's just like today versus yesteryear, but... I remember thinking, like, the Twins' bullpen was pretty good at the time. I remember thinking, like, well, Joe Nathan's one of the best there is, this side of Mo Rivera. Jesse Crane, you trust him. Matt Greer, you trust him. But it's like, looking back at it, even now when we say the Twins have what what you might consider a suspect bullpen by Major League standards or by the elite team's standards, they'd be so much more equipped to handle a game like this right now. Not only would you have a better starter in Barrios, but then you'd be able to dig into some length. Uh, guys who can pitch multiple innings out of the bullpen or multiple guys who can come in two innings at a time and shut it down. Think about bullpen. They didn't have that then. Think about bullpen construction back then, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Closer, like compared to now, lefty, com- eighth inning guy. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and there was. I'm not saying that back then there wasn't construction because there was, but just think about the difference in philosophy. And, and if you, okay, if you got to a key game now, and and Rocco paraded Ron Mayhay out there. Oh my God! Yeah, in a right. key situation, we'd all be like, Rocco, Dude. what what are what's happened to you? Yeah, yeah. It's you're it, not it, supposed it, to use that guy. He's just well, here in case you get he's, in he's trouble. A, he's an assistant bullpen coach. Yeah, right. no, you you literally had bullpen construction for not just the Twins, but for a lot of teams around baseball, included a guy who could only face lefties, which yeah. Ron Mayhay. And maybe even multiple guys like that, lefty specialist, and also a guy that you would only use in blowout games because he sucks. Yeah, yeah, that's your backup catcher now. (laughs) Like your mop-up guy. And the Twins had actually, if you want to go deeper, some guys who didn't pitch in this game but did pitch for the Twins in 2009. R.A. Dickey made 35 appearances. Yeah, Luis Ayala. Oh, yep. Sure. Craig (laughs) Breslow made 17 appearances for the Twins that season. Craig Breslow. Phil Umber. Yep. And uh, Kevin Mulvey as well. Yeah. <laughs> Before Kevin Phil Lumber's one day. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but but oh. the Twins, so the average strikeout rate in baseball today is a strikeout per inning for pitchers. So nine strikeouts per nine innings is average. The Twins that season, and this reflected some of Major League Baseball, the Twins were still at the bottom end of the strikeout rung. Some of their top relievers were pitched to contact guys. Matt Guerrero was five strikeouts per nine innings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's see here. Jesse Crane was seven strikeouts per nine innings. Well, Brian Dunsing was six strikeouts per nine innings. You yeah, know? and you remember those as trustworthy guys. You remember For like, sure. looking yeah. back on it as, yeah, I want that guy in the game. What's kind of a sad irony of modern-day baseball is Bobby Keppel, if he was, if this game happened 2019 for the Twins and Derek Falvey's calling the shots, 
Bobby Keppel pitches till his arm falls off in game 163, gets the win, and then he gets DFA'd afterwards so they can get a fresh arm for the playoffs. There's no way that guy's making the playoff roster. The, the only the only win that Bobby Keppel ever had in his career. That's amazing. That's the only win. Manny Hill trivia. Yeah. Yeah, That's find Bobby Keppel. Bobby what? Keppel, hold on, I, I pulled up the 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 sheet here. Bobby Keppel never pitched in the minor leagues again after that year. We got to talk to him for this. So we got to get him. He pitched. He pitched uh, for Florida the year before in AAA. He made a he had a couple cups of coffee with Kansas City and Colorado, but he never pitched in the minor leagues again after that game. That's that's crazy. I mean, it's not that crazy. He walked the plank and hit, sure. hit, yeah. he hit Brandon Inge with what would have been the game-winning run. Yeah, the base is loaded the in the 12th. into that game right. and actually played. It, it is, it's hilarious to go back and, and realize that Ron Mayhay and Bobby Keppel were your last two guys standing in one of the most important games yeah. you could possibly I almost think play. you'd just go get your starters now at this point. You'd be like, hey, uh, Gibby, I know you're pitching on three days of rest, but we might rather have you than the guy who's selling peanuts in left field. A question for you guys off the end of, of that game, and that game in its totality. Because when you go back and watch it now and how th- that ends, it looks like the Twins have won a championship of some sort. Yeah. Like that wasn't yeah. a, oh my God, we won a great game. And now we go on. It was like, oh, thank God we won. It was great. They celebrated that way in the clubhouse right. after, so, too. But yeah. <laughs> in it retrospect, may have cost them the game. Maybe the outside the clubhouse, it's too. It's not shocking that they then got swept by sure. New York. But what would have – in retrospect now, did it would be so hard to do, but was there a mistaken philosophy made by not winning that game, enjoying it, having fun – but I, I really think that they were so spent with emotion when Gomez slid and they went crazy. So so beyond the champagne for a second, just the attitude of, oh, my God, we just won this huge game. And now I mean, it was like they won something. I think two I think two part answer. I it's impo- you should you live and you and you work for games like that. So like celebrate on the field and do your thing. What I don't really get is these dudes drink just like gallons of beer and champagne there's no way you're performing at your peak capability the day or two after and they played the you're day getting bombed the day in the after club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah. they got in the plane okay like the next day so i the only thing i would have said is if you have a day or more in between celebrations have fun and go celebrate and do your thing and i know there's going to be celebration police out there and whatever but if it's a matter of no no like you have a game tomorrow. Don't be and, hungover, and you need to perform at your peak capability. <laughs> right. Let's just let's leave the champagne behind. The emotional spent is not something I'll ever try to police because how do you whatever? Sure. But yeah. like it reminds me a little bit different sports. Case Keenum to Stephon Diggs, and thinking being in that locker room the next week and thinking they're you know they're not going to win. <laughs> they are so focused and. So many questions by the media are being asked about, wasn't that crazy? Oh, could you just say into the microphone again how crazy that was? And they're like, we got a game. There's a game coming up. If In baseball, you need to have that mentality almost more than in football because the turnaround's so much quicker. Yeah. But I do wonder if there's something to that theory of the emotional tax of going through that emotional roller coaster. Well, I, I can just say as a fan at the time in attendance and – going through the roller coaster that, you know, Miguel Cabrera hits the massive home run off of Baker to put the Tigers up 3 nothing, and you're like, as a oh. fan, you're just like, oh, my God, this is going to happen. You know, a year after losing 163 the yes. year before, it's like, oh, my God, this is going to happen again. Yeah. Then 
Orlando Cabrera hits the home run to put the Twins up 4-3, and you're like, oh, my God, now, you know, it's happening, right, Phil? Like, just, it's happening. And then the Tigers go, like, the roller coaster ride as a fan in attendance just, I mean, I I just remember when Casilla got the game-winning single and Gomez came around and scored, I almost, and Ross will tell you guys this, I almost had no reaction because I was out. so, I, I, I had, I had my BlackBerry phone nice. recording it from way up in you know, oh, the second level, again, recording, yeah. recording the hit oh. and Gomez going around third. But like, I had no reaction because I was at this point, it's almost a five hour game. Yeah. We're in the 12th inning. So many things have happened on a roller coaster ride. Like I was, as a fan, I was emotionally <laughs> yes, spent. You know, I had no to reaction. Play the next day. Right? Yeah, imagine actually right. being be a member answer. of the team and, yeah. and then having to play. Well, I mean, and overmatched, unbelievable. Overmatched to start with. That Yankees team was better. Yeah. But I remember the BlackBerry anecdote sparked my memory. I was at Tory Hunter's last game at the Metrodome as a Twin. He goes out there for the ninth inning, and then Guardy does the classy thing, and he he pulls him. I think Jason Tyner might have gone in and played center field for him so Tori could walk off like on his own and the metrodome was just going nuts i mean everyone was you were either crying or shouting and you didn't know if he was going to leave but like he was probably going to leave and it was uh it was such a cool moment to be a part of, but for whatever reason, I was probably trying to record it on my Nokia brick phone <laughs> from the second deck in the cheap seats and like Bro, you're not going to watch that video ever yeah, again. That's that's not going to be something. But in the moment, you think, like, I have to have this. Uh, so just for, for people who are curious, what did happen in Game 1 exactly? We know the Twins got swept in 2009. Uh, and I think, actually, they put up a fight for sure in one of those games. Like, Nick Punto made a base-running mistake at third base. He overran third in the yep. in the home game against the Yankees. John Gordon melted down. Yeah. He's brutal. Oh, my goodness. John Gordon, who never melted down. But they down. weren't. That was a... And Joe Nathan gave up a bomb at one point. But it A-Rod. was... But that, that Yankees team went on to win the World Series. Yeah. He, but here was the state of the Twins' depth versus the Yankees all charged up for that game one. So the hungover Twins ran Brian Dunsing out there as a starter against peak in his prime CC Sabathia. Mm-hmm. Who had who had just come off of a nineteen and eight season with a three thirty earned run average and, and was set was up sec- to pitch in that game. Had won a couple. Had won a Cy Young award two years earlier <laughs> with the Indians. Yeah. Um, and predictably, the Twins got beat seven to two in that game, in which Phil Hughes actually came in and got a couple outs after CC Sabathia was done. Now, what which was game two the the Phil Cuzzy missed call on Maurer. Um, I believe so because game, game, two? game two the Twins game two lost four to three right? in extra yeah. innings, okay. and that was dude. The, that, the Twins could have stole that game if Phil Cuzzy was was you know had glasses. We could do a Minnesota <laughs> sports rewind on that series. We will and, like exercise point. those yeah. demons a little bit. Yeah. yeah, I had a couple of quick takes if you guys wanted to as we're wrapping. Uh, first, a positive one: watching at the end of that game, having a photo for the ages, like one that you just know will be hung up in the in Twins clubhouses and forever having mike redmond alexi casilla and bobby keppel celebrate in a hug at home plate there i was that's just All epic yes fully clothed at that dressed? point yes it was okay. it was right after the game I was scored. To make sure nothing was hanging out right after that run scored uh the other one is kind of a sad i don't know if sad but like the what ifs that were running through my head as i watched that game that's now 10 years old what if justin morneau never got hurt yeah Obviously, you could say the same thing about Maurer, but that's a probably a whole another ball of wax. Uh, Kadir had always kind of talked about learning to become this polished, thoughtful hitter 
when he was with the Rockies and then later the Mets. It's like I watched him wave at one of those patented sliders in the left-handed batter's box for a strikeout and think like, ah, what if he was just that guy, that cerebral hitter as he was kind of starring with the Twins? That was another big what if. And then if Jason Kubel never got hurt and he was really on that prospect tier of the Joe Mowers, the Justin Marnos, this team like wins multiple World Series if all those things break the Twins' way. Unfortunately, they all broke against them. You think they do, though? Because the pitching oh, yeah. still, to me, comes back and well, bite them. The other what-if would have been if Francisco Liriano never had never blown up. Yeah, if he would have just well, been and, the guy and the you, time. But, like, if you could have kept Santana, too, that, that changes the, the dynamic. For the, sure. The more yeah. no one to me is really That's huge. interesting. Because if I'm not mistaken, he got hurt in July 2010, right, in Toronto? Yes. Sliding into second base. Yeah, and that was back. a career. That that was not a career that was sort of taken off track. It was completely derailed. Just done. Yeah. But and that that was an MVP. If you recall, 2010 when he got hurt, that was an MVP type year. Yeah, like, he was he already good. better than when he won the MVP. He was great. He was yeah. the best the best hitter in baseball for the first three yeah. months of that season. Did you guys know that Justin Morneau only played in seven playoff games with the Twins? Yeah, because his first it's his crazy. first playoff series was 2004, and uh, the Twins got beat in four games against the Yankees. And 2006 was the last Twins playoff series he played in. And wow. they got swept by the A's because he didn't wow. play in 2009 and didn't, didn't play in 2010. There's another one, wow. the A's series that we could talk about. Yeah, what if? How the hell did that happen? <laughs> you know what? That's my 2009 was fun, but you, you go back and look at that team and you're like, okay, it really wasn't that good. It was just fun. 2006, we could talk about that. That team, team. should have won the World Series. What yeah. the bleep was going yeah. on? That's a that's yeah. a whole and episode. And Frank Thomas takes it to you. Yeah. yeah. Like, big that was hurt. an aging big hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, like, Eric Kotze, like, there are some random players. Mark, Mark, Mark Kotze. Wasn't yeah. he like leading yeah. off? Oh, you're for that thinking team? of Eric Fox in '92 when he hit the home run when, when they were battling the A's for first place. Actually, I'm thinking of Eric Kamatsu. Kamatsu oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, the rapper. <laughs> okay, I was trying to get you up the hook. All right. One more, one more name off that 2019 that I just remembered was on the team, but he got hurt, and I don't know if they like DFA'd him or something. But Joe Creedy. Yeah, Remember the Twins right. had signed Joe Creedy back. Joe that winter. Creedy. He, he had a bad, bad back. back and loaded gun. And it was that was it for him. He never. I don't think he ever played again. And he used wow. to. Yeah. He had killed the Twins with the White Sox, right? Yep. Yep. And, and then he developed a bad back. The Twins, of course, said, "Let's take a chance," and didn't work out. Yep. yep. One. I can't get through an episode talking about Game One Sixty Three without bringing up watching Delman Young run. On his tippy toes in left field will never not be funny to me. <laughs> tippy toed running so Delman Young just makes me smile. Delman Young, man, just uh, killing worms with ground balls, and uh, it's like he wasn't trying. Killing the bar scene, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Do you yeah. remember when when they had to stretcher him off the field in Milwaukee <laughs> yes. at Miller Park? Yeah, and played the next like, day, didn't and you're he? like, oh my god, he broke his leg. He's you know this is terrible. And yes, I believe he was in the lineup the next day. <laughs> they stretchered. <laughs> it was like they a brought, Saturday they night. They brought the ambulance. Onto I know. The field. They, they put him on the gurney. You're like, oh my god, he's out for the season. <laughs> okay. You're like, is that there a bone sticking out? <laughs> Designated hitter, Delman. I was like, how's he playing? He's back. <laughs> oh, that's Minnesota Sports Rewind, Game 163 edition. I'm Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad, Derek Wetmore, and Manny Thanks for listening.